this is Dawn Tree, and you're listening to Atypical Parenting, the podcast for people who love someone with autism. I'm glad you're here because I believe that this topic today might just be the most important one I've done so far. We have been looking directly at autism and learning how to better accommodate it and how to adjust our own behaviors to help support the people we love. But today, we're going to shift the focus and we are going to turn the lens around. We're going to look more closely at ourselves and how that influences and affects our children. I really, really, truly believe that if we as parents, as caregivers, are not able to manage our own emotions, then there really is not a whole lot of hope that we're going to be able to help anyone else manage theirs. Varied problems existing in this world also brings out a unique anxiety because when we love someone who's struggling, we're watching their struggle and loving them so much that it directly affects us and increases our own anxiety. And so even though the topic of this episode is anxiety in the caregiver, I actually think the real down and dirty topic is the whys and hows of handling our own shit. And by shit, I mean the shit that trips us up and makes us miserable, the shit that makes us worried and tense and irritable, the shit that makes it hard to be kind and patient. So handling our own shit requires an understanding of the things that help us maintain emotional self-regulation and then to actually take the time to do those things. We need to explore and learn the things that make us feel whole in real and meaningful ways, which requires prioritizing ourselves, right? How often do we put ourselves at the bottom of the list? And I know that's really hard to hear when you're spending so much time and energy helping the people you love, but spending time engaged in activities that reduce your physical and mental and emotional stress is going to directly translate into you being a better caregiver or a support system. You've all heard the expression, you can't pour from an empty cup. Caregivers are the cups that everyone around them is fighting for the last drop from. If you are a caregiver trying to lead and guide and support another human who is struggling, you'd better make damn sure that you have your own shit together first and foremost, because without that critical piece, your child or loved one is likely to have much poorer outcomes than they are capable of having. I think this concept is one of those things that we all understand in our heads, but in our hearts, it often feels like it's the wrong thing. It feels like we're taking time or energy away from someone else in order to give it to ourselves, and maybe it feels selfish. But what if I told you that research shows that parents who take care of themselves and their own mental health have happier and more well-adjusted kids? In 2021, a general population study was completed in Kenya, and I know Kenya is a little bit different than the U.S., but they looked at the average parents with average kids. And they measured associations between caregiver mental health and or the amount of parenting stress that they felt. And then they correlated it with those parents' children and their children's behavior. And the study conclusively showed that the more unmanaged stress or anxiety or depression the parents had, the more likely their children were to have behavioral problems. And if that's what happens with a group of normally developing children, and not the extraordinary ones that we are raising, how much more do you think it applies to us and our families? From 1995 to 1997, there was another study. It was a large-scale study called the ACE study, which is Adverse Childhood Events. 
and it looked at children and adolescents' lives and identified several predictors of chronic mental and physical health problems into adulthood. So they looked at what happened in these kids' lives when they were young, when they were growing up, and then they looked at them, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later when they were adults. And there were terrible things that happened to those kids in the study. They suffered physical abuse, emotional, sexual abuse, witnessing violence in the home, like your mom getting beaten up or threatened with a knife or a gun or physical neglect, such as not having adequate food or clothing. And now as you think about these events and probably are horrified, like I am, to think about kids going through that, know that equally as harmful and also included in the list was a household member who was depressed or anxious or otherwise mentally ill. Think on that for a second. The impact on your child's future of you as a parent or caregiver being depressed, anxious, or otherwise mentally ill is equivalent to them witnessing horrible violence in their home as far as outcomes go. And that's statistically. And it was a large study. It's pretty valid. So I hope that helps you understand how important it is for you to deal with your own mental health. Because this study shows us how important it is to figure that out. And I'm not sharing this with you to cause you any guilt or shame, but simply to help you understand how important today's topic really is. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is something that I saw firsthand, both in my family of origin as well as in my own family raising my children. In the family system in general, each member takes on or are kind of assigned by other members a specific role. Now, if you look at your own family of origin, the one that you grew up in, you're likely to see one member who was the caretaker or a member who was the fragile one and needed taken care of or other roles like that. And in 1985, there was a book written called Generation to Generation by Edwin Friedman, and he explained the concept of the identified patient, which is when one member of the family becomes the focus and generally because they're the one having trouble. So when we look at the person in the family who is struggling and we put them in the role of being the, quote, sick one, without looking at the entire family system, that's where we have a problem. Because more often than not, the person who is struggling, for me, it was my son who had autism, he was simply responding to the stress in the family system, which in my case was my anxiety and my dysfunctional marriage and relationship with my mother dynamics, right? Like all of that was kind of a mess. So when you look at your own child who's struggling, you really need to take out the idea in your head that they are the one with the problem, that they are the sick one, because simply they're probably just the most sensitive one. And instead of looking at only the one who's struggling and focusing on fixing them or helping them, what we really need to look at is the entire family system and realize that they likely are the one in whom the family stress or pathology has surfaced. So let me just say that one more time because it's important. The family member with the obvious symptom, so just say the kid with anxiety, should not be seen as the sick one, but as the one in whom the family stress or pathology has surfaced, right? Like, is that as mind-blowing to you as it is to me? It shouldn't be, right? Like here I am, an educated woman doing psychiatry for a living, 
And yet every time I think about this topic, it's kind of mind blowing because so many times we're like, oh, this kid, this kid's really struggling. They're real anxious. They're having trouble going to school. They're really can't go to sleep. All these things, right? We don't even look at the whole picture. And the whole picture is that there's dysfunction in the family that's not being addressed. The family system has to be evaluated. And a lot of the time, there is this underlying stress or anxiety or other dysfunction in the parents, in us, that is trickling down to our kids. And the kid is simply struggling because they are so sensitive to it. Our kids with autism are super sensitive. Say what you will about lack of empathy. They can read people and feel energy like nobody's business. And so parents, caregivers, as people who are support systems for other people, we often think it's noble somehow to address everyone else while putting ourselves at the bottom of the list. And I hope by now you're getting the point that by doing that, we're not addressing our own stuff and we're harming them, really. We're pushing aside our own anxiety, our own stress, or in Friedman's word, our own pathology, which is preventing everyone in the family from being healthy. We're trying to grow these beautiful, fragile flowers in the poison soil of our own dysfunction. And that is simply not gonna work. So just in case you thought it was only you and me, the current statistics for 2023 state that in the US, 27% of all adults and 42% of young adults ages 18 to 29 are suffering from some type of persistent anxiety. 42%. That's nearly half of today's young adults walking around worried and anxious and having trouble getting through their days. That is just awful for so many reasons. But when you think about the fact that these young adults are childbearing age, and when anxious people become parents or caregivers, it really truly becomes urgent to understand how our anxiety as adults for these young people, especially who are just having kids now, needs to be considered early in the game instead of late once your child starts having symptoms. You know, I'm just going to share some personal things today, and I'm doing that in the hopes that it might help you face your own struggle or maybe simply help you feel less alone. But growing up, I struggled with anxiety from about the time I was nine or 10, I guess. And I've always had a very sensitive nervous system. And also there were some significant family stressors and I learned to cope, but those coping skills were mostly unhealthy. So when I had children, feeling anxious and fearful and worried was my normal state, right? In a sense, that's how I felt comfortable because that's what I had always known. And I just kept on moving and I continued to cope in all the unhealthy ways in which I'd always coped, which was when life felt overwhelming, which was a lot of the time I was escaping. I was spacing out, or what I now understand is dissociating, or I was engrossing myself in novels, or drinking too much wine, or even keeping myself so busy going from task to task that I couldn't think or need to engage with anyone. I was busy, right? We forget that being so busy is often a maladaptive coping strategy to avoid our feelings, but that is exactly what it is for so many people. And so even though I was physically with my children, taking care of their needs, making sure their clothes were clean and healthy food was on their plates and the house was just so, 
in hindsight, I wasn't really present in the way that I wish I had been. And not only was I not present, I know now that when we as adults who are caring for young people are anxious, we are simply not at our best because those anxious moments are the ones that we regret when we look back. They're the times when we get annoyed or lose our temper, when we say awful things to our kids that stick in their brains and become part of their internal self-talk. The times when we're distracted and we miss out on the amazing special moments of connection. And honestly, as the adults in the room, we need to be modeling good coping skills and emotion regulation in order for our children to develop them. In the history of time, I don't think kids have been fooled into doing what they're told rather than what they see. So know that your kids or the people you're caring for are watching you. In addition to basic tasks that make up a day of caring for others, it's really our responsibility to also provide calm and safety. It's our job to set the tone for the environment. Think about being around a person who is anxious and how that frenetic energy feels, right? The tension in the air. Now imagine how difficult and confusing it must be for a child who depends on that anxious person for care and love and even survival. Being around that kind of energy is exhausting and stressful. It's no wonder our kids are affected by our anxiety. And one more thing to consider is that people who go through life stressed and anxious have shorter lives. They die sooner because of all the stress and anxiety taking a toll on their physical health. And I know that you want to be around for your loved one as long as possible. And they want you here too. So hear me when I say the first thing you need to do when you identify anxiety or behavioral problems in your child or loved one is to evaluate first and foremost whether or not you have your own anxiety that needs to be identified and managed. And if that's the case, then your first priority in helping them has to be learning how to regulate yourself. And when you do that, you'll be able to provide a calm space that they need to feel safe. Once you come to the conclusion that you have your own anxiety, the next thing to do is figure out what you're going to do about it. It takes a little bit of effort and it's not easy. So I've put together some out-of-the-box ideas, hopefully some new ones that you haven't considered before, because I think all of us know the standard advice, right? Therapy, maybe medication, exercise, yada, yada, yada. Those are valid and useful. And believe me, I use them, most of them, all of them. <laughs> but there are a whole lot of other everyday ways you can manage your stress and anxiety. Now, just remember, everyone is different, and what helps one person may not help another person. But the thing is, you don't know what will help until you try something. So even if these things sound like totally ridiculous to you, you might want to just trust me and give it a try. So obviously, the first step for everyone is acknowledging that there's a problem that needs a solution. And once you acknowledge that, make a plan and commit to it. Nothing is going to change with your anxiety unless you take steps to change things, right? You can have all the good intentions in the world, but you really have to set yourself up for success by sitting down and making a concrete plan. And a plan ideally will include not only the strategies you want to try out, but also when and where and how you're going to make those things happen. You need to schedule it or probably it's not going to get done consistently. Put it on your calendar. Treat it as a non-negotiable part of your day or your week. And make plans for someone else to handle the house stuff or the kids stuff so that you can meet that obligation to yourself. Number two, a simple and highly effective stress relief strategy is getting out into nature. 
The studies on stress hormones and how they're affected by spending time in nature are just simply amazing. In 2019, researchers asked 36 people to spend just a few minutes, three days a week, in an outdoor place where there was some component of nature. And so the participants got to choose their own version of nature. Some went into their yard or to a public park or even to just a patch of grass near their job. And they didn't do anything special. They either walked or they just sat there. And what do you think happened? After eight weeks, the study showed that spending between 20 to 30 minutes immersed in nature. Do you have 20 minutes? I think you do. It was associated with the biggest drop in cortisol levels. And cortisol, you probably have heard of, it's a hormone that's released when we're stressed out. And it has all kinds of negative effects on our physical health. And the study found that the time of day or the specific setting or what you were doing really did not even matter. It was just simply taking time in a nature setting. So find some green space, walk barefoot on the grass, feed the birds, watch the dogs play at the dog park, get out on a kayak or a paddleboard, hug a tree, whatever, anything. It will make a difference, I promise, because if you can decrease your cortisol levels, that's a physiological step toward decreasing your overall stress and anxiety. Number three, creativity is another thing that's been studied for its stress and anxiety lowering effects. You guys know how to be creative. And I know some of you might say, oh, I'm not creative, but you are. Every single one of us is creative. And so maybe it's art. Maybe it's things like painting or drawing, or maybe it's like hands-on types of things like pottery or building things. Or maybe you just like to sit down and put a puzzle together and use your creative problem-solving abilities. These things are going to activate different areas in your brain, which pull energy away from the anxiety centers and decrease your overall levels of stress. So find something creative to do with your time instead of just watching TV for hours at night. Or maybe you could do it while you're watching TV, right? Like you could put a puzzle together while you're watching TV. You can color a coloring book. They have these wonderful adult coloring books. They're intricate designs and they're just so much fun. So find something creative to do. Number four, using all of your senses. Multiple studies have shown that when we tune into our physical senses, we feel calmer. Chewing gum and savoring the flavor. Holding a warm cup of tea or cocoa or my favorite coffee, <laughs> although coffee and the caffeine are not always conducive to lowering your stress. At any rate, having a soft blanket on your bed, listening to natural sounds like birds chirping or water running, decorating our homes in soothing colors, it all makes a difference. And those kinds of things are super easy to incorporate into your daily life because when you take a minute to build them into your environment, then it's part of your everyday routine. Speaking of TV, Limiting your screen time is going to serve two purposes as far as stress relief goes. It decreases your stress directly, but it also frees up your time to engage in all these other activities that we're talking about that are beneficial. So make a concerted effort to decrease the amount of time you are sitting and staring at other people living their lives on TV or social media, right? Like, why do we do that? I, I have such a problem with this myself. Like, I find myself vegging out at the end of the day because I want to relax and I'm watching other people live their lives. And it's kind of ridiculous because if I were out there living my own life, instead of just mindlessly scrolling or watching, how much healthier would I be? 
And the evidence is stacking up now that the more time a person uses electronic screens of any sort, the higher the likelihood of depression and anxiety. And we could probably debate about whether it's correlation or causation, but in general, if you're staring at a screen, you're missing out on so many other amazing experiences. You're watching a simulated version of life. That's crazy to think about. And you're also probably sitting on your ass while you do it, which is another issue because people who are more sedentary, people who sit more often have more mental and physical health problems overall. So put your phone down, turn off the TV, and make a plan like you're going to take a walk after dinner instead of watching TV. Like you're going to have no technology zones in your house, like maybe the dining room or the bedroom. You're going to leave your phone in another room on silent when you get home at the end of the day. Or maybe set your screen time or app time settings to remind you when you're getting a little carried away. Commit to charging your phone in another room and then go to sleep without waking up to that distraction. I've been doing that and it's amazing. I'm hoping to stick to it. But these are the things, right? We have to try different strategies to know what's going to help us. Another out-of-the-box way to decrease your stress and anxiety is to find ways to increase your oxytocin. And if you're thinking that you have no idea what oxytocin is, it's a hormone that's released by social or physical contact. So when you stare into somebody's eyes, you get a surge for a period of time, like, I don't know, 10 seconds or something, you get a surge of this hormone oxytocin release that makes you feel good. It makes you feel connected to that person. It's released in lots of ways, and it has both stress-reducing and attachment-enhancing benefits. There was a study done using PET scans, and in people with social anxiety disorder, they showed that oxytocin decreases the overactive amygdala, and that's the part of the brain that creates all those thoughts about social interactions. Do they like me? Do they think I'm smart? How do I look? Do they like the way my hair is? Am I talking properly? Is my vocabulary good enough? Oh, did I say the F word, right? Like all these thoughts that spin around in our social anxiety situations happen in the amygdala and oxytocin can calm that down. So the obvious ways to increase oxytocin are things like hugging or kissing or cuddling or, like I said, staring into somebody's eyes. But increased oxytocin levels also are measurable after things like practicing group yoga, listening to music or singing, getting or giving a massage, spending time with a friend or someone you care about, doing something novel especially increases oxytocin. Another way to decrease your anxiety is to practice loving-kindness meditation, which essentially means sitting quietly for two seconds and directing thoughts of love, compassion, and goodwill towards someone in your life and sending them thoughts of peace and wellness. And it's important when you do this that you send those thoughts to someone else in your life, but also to yourself, because without self-compassion, there is no loving-kindness right? So practice loving-kindness meditation. It doesn't have to be stressful or time-consuming. Two seconds. Another way is to do random acts of kindness. And you know what I mean. Doing something nice for no reason at all when the other person least expects it. I want to tell you that recently I was having a really shitty day and someone paid for my coffee at the drive-thru. 
It was the car in front of me who obviously I didn't know them. And it's so ridiculous. That had never happened to me before. And it was super simple. And yet that simple act of kindness brought me to tears. And I thought, how ridiculous. I felt so silly and stupid, but really there is no easier way to spread kindness in the world while decreasing your stress and anxiety. Doing nice things for other people is one of the best ways to decrease your stress. It's a win-win. And, you know, obviously we're talking about doing things for ourselves, so this may sound a little counterintuitive, but I'm not talking about giving away all of your time to help other people. I'm talking about small kindnesses that make our world a better place to be. Another scientifically proven way to decrease your stress and anxiety is to spend time with animals. One of my all-time favorites is playing with puppies or kittens because there's just something magical about feeling their soft fur and watching them play. And it just kind of fully puts me in the moment and it feels so joyful. It makes my heart happy. And I know it's ridiculous. It's probably just craziness, but I go to like uh, the pet stores when they set up, the rescues will set up the puppies and obviously hoping that they will find their forever home. But since I already have my rescue doggy at home and uh, more pets really would not fit so great into my life at this time, I can still go and give a little love to these puppies because what they give me back is just pure joy. It makes me happy and it's amazing and it's free, which is better yet. So I think what I'm trying to say at this point is just seriously to make an effort to spend time with people or creatures that bring you happiness, people who make you feel valued and care about. Consciously surround yourself with people who are kind and generous and rooting for your success. And honestly, that might mean that you have to leave some people behind for now. If you are on social media, say, and you're scrolling through people who make you feel kind of yucky, people who are not going to be there for you if you need them, people who never go out of their way to like your posts or to send you a message or a text or anything else, those people got to go. And that's okay. Because remember, not everyone is destined to be in your life forever. And walking away does not diminish the important role that they played in your life. That is another area. Time with people who don't matter, or quite frankly, who suck. Taking time to spend with them, get rid of that. Take that time and do something that's beneficial to you and your health and your happiness. So today I am telling you to handle your shit. I really want to encourage you to just stop putting yourself at the bottom of the to-do list. It's human nature to think like, oh, I don't have time for that, right? I don't have time to take care of myself. I have to do all of these other things. Everybody needs to be driven places. Or I have meetings to attend or homework I have to help with. But at the end of the day, so much of the stuff that we prioritize does not even matter. People, when they grow older, they do not look back and think, oh, that homework assignment that mom helped me with, that really made a huge difference. No, they're not going to remember that. They probably think, man, that sucked. So many of the things that we prioritize in life, and from my opinion, homework, that is a struggle. In general, that's not time well spent. Yelling at my kid to sit down and do those stupid math problems for the 50th time, that's not worth it. It's not going to matter in the end. It's not going to have lasting benefits. So please look at the big picture. Take stock of the things that are really affecting you and the people in your life that you love and take control of it. Wouldn't it suck 
if you spent all of your time and money providing all of these things for your child, activities and experiences and things, but you didn't take care of yourself and they ended up messed up because of it. How much would that suck? Don't find yourself in that situation. You need to take care of yourselves if you want your children to be happy. And if you don't have the self-esteem or the self-worth or whatever it takes to do that for yourself, do it for them. Do it for your children or the people you love. Because having a healthy mother or father or caregiver is the biggest factor to becoming a healthy adult. Thanks for hanging out with me today. I really appreciate you spending your valuable time here. I think it's kind of magical that we're all on this journey together, each one of us with our own unique circumstances, but we're all here together learning and growing and striving to be the best version of ourselves so that we can be better at supporting the people we love. Quick shout out to my extraordinary editor and co-producer, Sam Eisenbaum. I know that there are a lot of parents and caregivers out there who are looking for the kind of community that we are creating here. If you find value in this podcast, it would mean so much to me if you could rate and review it on your podcast platform so that more people like us can find it. And remember, I am a psychiatric nurse practitioner. However, I am not your or your child's psychiatric nurse practitioner, and nothing in this podcast is considered medical advice. I hope you guys have a fantastic week. 